The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 23 Honest Dale's Used Cars Boniker was talking on the phone when I walked in. He was dressed casually in a faded polo shirt with the logo of his insurance company over the pocket and a pair of khaki pants. He gave me an energetic military salute as I walked by, and I heard him say into the phone, So the hippie takes off his mask and says, Surprise! I'm the hippie! Then the nun takes off her mask and says, Surprise! I'm the bus driver! He guffawed. I'm the bus driver! He repeated gleefully. Get it? I walked past Gretchen's desk, which was unoccupied, and into my office. On my desk was a bud vase with a single pink rose. Beneath the vase was a handwritten note from Gretchen. It read, Augie, if you can't have rosy cheeks, then how about a plain old-fashioned rose? And I don't want to hear any complaints about women giving men flowers. Didn't anyone ever tell you not to look a gift bud in the pistol? I told Ben I was taking the rest of the day off. Time for a little retail therapy. But I did check into the things you requested. Here's the scoop. You're on for the gig at Anducci this evening. Tony wants everyone there by 6.30. You're supposed to play four sets, and he expects you'll be out of there by one or so. Todd Nagel's landlord has no forwarding address for him. He says Nagel was a good tenant and always paid his rent on time. However, Nagel only gave him a few days' notice before he moved out. I checked through the phone numbers on the bill you gave me. Most of them were pretty innocuous. If you think 200 bucks worth of one 900 phone sex numbers is innocuous. But it does appear that Mr. Nagel called Terry McCullough's home number several times. He also made a lot of calls to a number with a Woodside prefix, not bishops, that I can't track down. It never picks up when I call, and it's not shown in any of the reverse directories we have. Maybe you have some other tricks up your sleeve. Take care of yourself, XOXO, Gretchen. It occurred to me, not for the first time, that Gretchen was better than I deserved. I picked up Nagel's phone bill from the desk where Gretchen had left it and glanced at the number she had highlighted. It had an 851 prefix like Bishop's, but apart from that, there was nothing familiar about it. I folded up the bill and put it in my breast pocket with the intention of getting Stockwell to use his official connections on it. Then I pulled out the yellow pages to refresh my memory on the address that went with the phone number and place of business I'd seen earlier today on a business card. Chuck Haystrup's friend Dale was running a nice half-page ad to remind me that Pace Auto Sales and Brokerage was located on Market Street, just east of Laguna. I jotted down the street number and went out of the office. Boniker was still talking on the phone as I walked by. There was a concerned look on his face. He said, Hey, come on, I'm Catholic myself. I went to St. Ignatius and was taught by the sisters and everything. There's no reason to cancel your insurance policy over a little joke. As a matter of fact, my good friend Father Murphy told it to me in the first... Hello? Hello? I jumped on the number 8 bus, just outside the building, and rode it straight down Market to Laguna. Dale Pace's used car emporium was on a narrow lot that ran under an elevated portion of Highway 101. There was a Quonset hut at one end for washing and prepping the cars, 
and a trailer on a raised platform at the back that housed the office. A tattered line of plastic flags was strung from the trailer to the hut, like colored pennants on a sinking yacht. There were about three dozen cars for sale, all of them five or more years old, and none of them costing much over $6,000. It looked like the kind of place you bought your car if you were on your way up in the world, or you were well on your way down. The oppressive rumble of freeway traffic fell on me like a weighted net as I came onto the property. To my extreme right was a young couple eyeing a middle-aged Toyota with skepticism. In front of them stood a glib-looking man in a checkered sport coat and a black turtleneck. He had bushy black hair, a black mustache, and he smiled a lot, and he made tight gestures with his fingers extended as if he was coiling yarn. I left them to the rituals and made a beeline for the door of the trailer. Inside there was a lot of dust, linoleum, low-wattage lighting, and a couple of desks. Behind one of these sat Dale Pace. He glanced up as I walked in and immediately jerked open a drawer and began groping for something at the back. I pulled open my jacket with my left hand and wrapped my right around the exposed butt of the Glock automatic. It doesn't have to be this way, I said. But if you insist on swapping lead, you're going to be doing a lot more catching than throwing. He looked at me impassively and slumped back into his chair, his hands folded on his lap. If you think I'm going to hold still for more of that crazy shit you pulled on Chuck, best you take your piece all the way out and see can you find the trigger. I let my arms go back to my side and walked deliberately over to Pace's desk. There were several pictures of him in a Steelers uniform on the wall behind, and a game ball resting on a stand on the bookshelf to one side. Pace was in shirt sleeves and a tie, and from the junk on top of his desk appeared to have been working on the company books. I sat down in a chair by the desk. I came to talk, I said. That's all. That ain't necessarily better, he said, because I don't have a whole heck of a lot to say to you, unless you are in the market for a car, that is. No, no cars. I took the bus today. Viva public transportation and all that. Have the cops been here yet? Pace took his time with that one. So you filed a complaint, did you? Seems to me what you did to Chuck pretty much even things out. Or did you figure you still owed me? I owe both of you plenty more as far as I'm concerned. But Chuck has put himself in a position where he's no longer eligible to receive payment. He committed suicide this morning. Blew his brains out at a shooting range in South San Francisco. Pace brought a finger up to his mouth and bit off a hangnail. He turned his head and spat out the harvest. You'll have to excuse me, I said. I'm not used to coping with such a display of unvarnished grief. I'd be an idiot to take your word for it, said Pace. But if it is true, then it don't surprise me in the least. He was heading for a fall, no question. Why? Because he got himself wrapped up with that bitch. She manipulated him all to hell. Had him run interference for her. Had him drop the hammer on you and all sorts of other shit he never would have got involved with on his own. He thought it was true love. She thought it was a convenient way to scrape the mud off her shoes. But that doesn't explain why he killed himself. Not really. Did McCullough dump him? Pace shook his head. No. I mean, I don't know, man. Hard to dump someone exactly when you're hiding out from the cops. He must have got fed up with it all. He must have finally seen for himself what she was doing to him. Took a look in the mirror one day and didn't like the thing staring back at him. I don't believe it. There's got to be something else. Drugs, financial problems... 
culpability for a big crime, something. Pace cracked the knuckles on his huge hands absently. Hey, it don't make a never no mind to me what you think. I'm not even sure I believe he's dead. I'm just telling you it wouldn't surprise me. Did he shoot Roland Teller? Could that be what was eating him? No, he did not shoot Teller. I think you've got a wrong idea about Chuck Haystrip. He isn't, or wasn't, the killer type. He could be mean, sure. You can't play defensive lineman in the NFL and not get a little mean. But on his own, he was basically a pretty good Joe. He used to do volunteer work for the Big Brothers. Donate blood. All sorts of do-gooder crap. Then he met her. She warped him something terrible, but not enough to kill. So what's your excuse? Pace smiled broadly. Oh, I'm naturally bad. No one's fault but my own. If I'd been working you over that night, you would still be in the hospital counting doctor's fingers, as in, how many am I holding up now, Mr. Reardon? But when I do shit, I do it for me. I don't do it because some bitch squeezes my dick and pats me on the head. You helped Haystrip that night. That wasn't for you. That's different. I used to play ball with him. And you had already knocked him around pretty good earlier in the day. I didn't want him getting busted up anymore. I should have let it go, but I said, For somebody who's so all-fired eager to protect him, you sure don't seem very upset now to hear that he's dead. Pace went rigid in his chair. He seemed to grow larger. I already told you. I don't necessarily believe word one that you say. And if you expect me to start bawling or some shit like that after you come waltzing in here with a loaded gun, you got another thing coming. I'd written Chuck off anyway. That McCullough bitch took away his manhood. That was almost exactly what Terry McCullough said Bishop had credited her with. If that's the case, I said, why don't you tell me where she is? And why don't you fly around the room with jet farts out of your ass? Pace laughed. I can't, is why. Chuck never told me, and I never asked. Truth be known, I don't think McCulley even told him where she was. But she did call him after the murder. So he said, Look, it's not like I've been living with the guy. He called me once after you did your thing on him with a nail gun to give me the heads up. He said he talked to the bitch, and he started to lay on the sob stuff about what a shitty deal she got. But I told him to can it. I didn't want to listen to that load of boo-hoo. I picked up a rubber band from Pace's desk and began twanging it like a bass string. I let my eyes wander up to the pictures of him in the uniform. I remember you now from the Steelers, I said. You were a heck of a linebacker. Pace grunted noncommittally, but I could tell he was pleased. Well, them days are long gone. I wished I had a tenth of the money I made back then. I wouldn't be sitting in a trailer on a used car lot talking to you. But the coke and the women bled me white, so to speak. That's why I don't have much patience for Chuck. He's too old to be making those kind of mistakes with his life. Pace looked down at his lap and seemed to go away for a moment. You giving me the bona fides on this thing with Chuck? About him killing himself? It's true. You'll probably be having a visit from a cop named Stockwell as soon as he can line up some cooperation from the SFPD. Then, to explain the connection, they found your card in his wallet. So you're not filing charges on the shit that went down outside in the key of G? Nope. There'd be a list of about 20 guys ahead of you if I started filing charges on everyone I tangled with. Stockwell's an EPA cop anyway. 
It wouldn't do any good to take it to him. Well, I'm not sorry we racked you up. That was just the way it was. But I am sorry I smashed your bass. I snuck into the club while we were waiting and I heard you play. You weren't half bad, for a white boy. Thanks. Crawford is the one with the juice in that band, though. While we're talking about the club, mind if I ask you one more question? Then I'll get out of your hair. Pace rubbed his shaved head. Lucky I'm not a sensitive person, or I might have taken that for a crack. Go ahead. Ask your question. There was a girl at the club that night named Jody. She works for Edwin Bishop like Terry McCullough used to. Do you know where she stands in all this? Did she have anything to do with you guys finding me at In the Key of G? You must be the kind of guy that asks for double bags at the grocery store, Reardon. Chuck told me you wanted to know about her. All I can tell you is she's a friend of Terry's. And Chuck said that she and Terry weren't getting on so well since Terry had left Bishop. But she didn't have nothing to do with us being at the club. We tailed you there from your apartment. I started to say something and Pace raised his hand. And don't ask me about that other dude you mentioned to Chuck, because I don't know nothing about him neither. Nagel's his name. But that's not what I was going to ask. I was going to ask why Terry and Jody weren't getting on. Who knows, man? Think I pay attention to crap like that? It was just some shit Chuck said while we were freezing our asses off in the van waiting for you to show. It wouldn't surprise me if they weren't so hot for each other now. One of them lost her job and the other one kept it. Envy. That's what that's called. I stood up. Thanks, I said. I appreciate the information. Pace got up too and put out his hand. I shook it. Oh yeah, he said. I'm happy to help a guy that lets me know I'll be catching lead as soon as he comes through the door. Well, I didn't exactly think you were reaching for a number two pencil. You got that right, Reardon. Watch your back now. I went out the trailer door. The salesman and the couple I'd seen earlier were just coming up the steps. I left the door open and the salesman slipped through behind me. Dale, I've got some bad news, he said in a loud voice from inside. The Hendersons here have just about stolen a car from us. I flagged a cab on market and rode back to my apartment. I tried calling Jody at Bishop's mansion, but I got the answering machine twice, and the third time Bishop himself picked up, and I had no intention of talking to him. Just for yucks, I tried the number from Nagel's phone bill. It didn't pick up at all. I thought about calling Margaret Teller, but I wasn't sure what I would say to her. I wondered what made me think of her at all. When I got bored asking myself questions I couldn't answer, I took a long hot shower and changed for my gig at Anducci. At around 6 o'clock, I carried my electric basin amp down to the Galaxy 500. The first drops from some nasty-looking storm clouds flattened against my windshield as I rolled down Post Street. You have been listening to The Immortal Game, a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Music